Good evening. There are handouts that are available. I have some here. I can start them, pass them around. But if you didn't get uh, any, they're on the tables in the, in the uh, beginning of the, uh, the front of the auditorium. So I'll hand you some of these. But if you'd like to look at it electronically, just go to the Bible, T-H-E-B-I-B-L-E dot net forward slash Buford dot PDF. I'll mention that again. The Bible dot net forward slash Buford dot PDF. So since I've been here this evening, I've been uh, reminded that I'm forgetful and uh, suggested that I'm old. So... Thank you, thank you for the welcome. Everything about life, not just spiritual life, but just about life, is relationship-centric. It's about give and take. It's about not always pushing to get your own way and willing to defer willing to give in, willing to allow others to have their way. If you're married and you don't know that, I hope you're still married. There are some things that Evelyn makes decisions about that occasionally I might chafe when I first hear, you didn't ask me. But uh, she's a soul equal in value to my soul and uh, she doesn't need to ask me about everything. Those kind of dynamics you work out over a period of time. In the context of how you do work, wherever you work, wherever you go to school, in the neighborhoods you live in, whatever circumstance you find yourself, those dynamics are always at play. How do you get along with the people around you? Are you the sort of person that always insists on getting your way about whatever it is that's up for discussion? It may be very insignificant, but it may be very significant to you, at least in your estimation. And as a result of that, you need to be heard. And you not only need to be heard, your, your considerations need to be fully, fully accepted by others, so much so that you want your way. Let me simply say, if you're sort of a person that has to have your way all the time about all things, you might be a difficult person to get along with. And I say that not to hurt your feelings, because I know what that's like. I know what it's like to think the way I think is better than anybody else thinks, because, hey, it's me. I know what's best. Hopefully, as you age, you lose that sort of sentiment. Not just in the way you get along with each other as husband and wife, but as a father, as a mother, as a child, relationship to co-workers, relationship to neighbors, relationship to brothers and sisters in Christ. That dynamic of the marriage relationship is brought out both positively and negatively in scriptures. Negatively, just read through the book of Hosea and see the things that Hosea had to deal with with his unfaithful wife, Gomer. And all of that is an image of the way God and the children of Israel were getting along. Not too well, thank you. Their relationship wasn't the best, 
because Israel did not defer to God. And in many contexts, they didn't even consider what God wanted. In the context of the New Testament, a very positive declaration is made in the book of Ephesians, the fifth chapter. When it compares the relationship between Christ and his kingdom, the church, to a husband and wife relationship. And it works when everybody defers to one another. I've been asked to speak about Romans chapter 14, a singular chapter. But if you've already glanced through what I presented here, you're going to see that we're going to back up a little bit and look at chapter 12 and chapter 13 as lead-ins to chapter 14, and there's a reason why. The concept of what it means to defer to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is absolutely defining of what it means to be Christ's. The mindset that I live in this body and I think my thoughts, and I say my words, and I act the way I want to act, very much me-driven, has to fade away when we deal with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. The apostles were of the mindset, because they were something special in their own eyes, that they should be giving something special from the Lord. Lord, we've served you all these years. When you come into your kingdom, are we going to sit on thrones with you? I understand that. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah. You're part of his inner circle. You thought you should be especially blessed. And one of the things that Jesus taught the disciples was, maybe, maybe I called you to suffer as I've suffered, not to make you kings as I am also a king. I don't know that went over too well. So if you have your Bibles open and you're reading through the notes, let's start at Romans chapter 12. And I'm just going to highlight some of the things that are presented here. In Romans chapter 12, and this is multiple paragraphs down on the first page, Christians are taught something very unique from the standpoint of the sacrifices that they are to offer. In the Old Testament system, the sacrifices were physical animals that had no choice in the matter. They were offered at the behest of the choice of the individuals who slew them and offer them to God's honor and glory. And in this context, Paul says that you, as Christians, are to offer up your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, that's an oxymoron. What's that mean? Well, there's a contradiction there. If it's a sacrifice, it's dead. If it's living, it's not dead. So what do you mean when you say living sacrifices? It means that everything about your life in devotion to God is a perpetual sacrifice in which though you're still living and breathing and moving and thinking and speaking and acting and so forth, you are dying to self and you're dying to sin and you're doing your dead level best to serve God through Christ before others in the world. The mindset of getting my own way all the time can't fly in the body of Christ. It makes no difference if you're an elder, deacon, Deacon, preacher, Bible class teacher, makes no difference how old you are, how young you are, makes no difference what your income is, makes no difference what the color of your skin is. It makes no difference how you might measure yourself as a person of worth in the world. In God's sight, all of those differences make no difference. You're a soul created in the image of God. And how in part you get along with God is determined by how you get along with each other. And if you're not a sort of get-along kind of person, you will have 
a hard road to hoe serving Christ. Because selflessness must rule the day instead of selfishness. Now Paul accentuates that in Romans chapter 12 by speaking about this concept of being a perpetual living sacrifice, constantly willing to die to yourself. He brings out another illustration in that chapter, Romans chapter 12, in which he talks about the body of Christ spiritually like it's a physical body. And this is brought up not only here, but also in some of his other writings, in which he's saying that every part of the body is of consequence compared to every other part of the body. You can't be dismissive of other people who are also part of the body of Christ. The blood of Jesus that cleansed you when you were immersed into Christ with the mission of sins, cleansed every other soul who's part of the body and made them part of the body, having cleansed them also of their sins. You are not more equal or less equal. They are not more equal or less equal. You are equal, equal, equal. And so as part of the body, you have to function that way. There may be some people who, because of physical difficulties in life, don't move the way they used to move, or they never move that way. Reminds me of the Steve Martin movie many years ago, in which he couldn't walk right because his body didn't function right, and all parts of it wanted to go off in different directions at the same time. Well, that doesn't work very well physically, nor does it work very well spiritually. And so Paul's already teaching in the 12th chapter something that's incredibly important when we get to the 14th chapter. Do you know how to give in? Do you know how not to push for your own way so that the body of Christ might be intact, functioning as a unit? As you segue from the 12th chapter into the 13th chapter, Paul's going to do the same sort of thing on a grander scale. He wants us not only to defer to each other individually as Christians and to every other human being, that's brought out later in Romans chapter 12, but he wants you to defer to governments and the powers that be, civil authorities that may no, be nowhere near what you want them to be. And he says, in effect, these civil authorities only have the power that they do because God allows them to have that power. That's not a statement about how good they are or how bad they are. It's just a statement that God's behind allowing them have the authority that they have in that given context. And he says, you need to submit to them. There's a model that's here in relationships that's taught everywhere from the opening chapters of Genesis to the closing chapters of the book of Revelation. And it's summed up in what we know to be the great commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love others, love your neighbor as you love yourself. This love of God dynamic is a relationship that determines whether or not I am acceptable to God. Do I love God or do I just do what God wants me to do? And there's no love intended. You may be in a job that's a dead-end job and you do what you're told to do because you have to do it because you want to get paid. But you don't love the job. You'd rather not do that. 
what it meant to be God's under the context of the Old Testament law, it was possible to go through the motions of having a job of being a faithful Jew and offering all the sacrifices and doing all the things that you're supposed to do, of tithing of mint and anise and cumin, which the Pharisees did to a great degree, and your heart's nowhere near where God wants it to be. The first part of the Ten Commandments deal with our love and relationship with God. And the last part of them deal with our love and relationship of our fellow man. And so the principle of loving God first and loving your neighbor second, they are intertwined. In order for me to have a God relationship, I've got to have a relationship with you. And if I don't have the right kind of relationship with you, then I can't have the God relationship that God wants me to have. How can you claim to love God whom you have not seen when you cannot love your brother and sister in Christ whom you have seen? John asks, not so rhetorically in the first epistle. His point is you claim to be mine, but you don't show that you are mine by the way that you live. And so Romans 12 is talking about relationship in a body context, a spiritual body context, drawing from the physical illustration of the body. And Romans 13 carries it to the extent of saying you need to even defer to nations on a larger scale when they are nowhere near what you want them to be because God asks you to do that. Peter does the same sort of thing. Prove people, prove to people that you're wrong by living the right way. Prove to people that they are wrong in their assessment of you by living the right way, the way Jesus would have you to live. Everything is about relationship, first to God and then to everybody else, especially brothers and sisters in Christ. The New Testament text tells us that we are to love and honor, prefer one another. And I've seen brethren act like they would rather not be in anybody else's company but their own. That's not Jesus. That's not God. That's not the Spirit of God. That's selfishness rather than selflessness. When you get to Romans chapter 14, another element comes into play. And it's absolutely incredible. It talks about faith. Only in the context of Romans chapter 14, when it's talking about faith, it's not talking about doctrinal faith in the sense that we usually think of it. Well, the Bible teaches this, and I believe that, so I'm a person of faith. It's a tenet of faith that you believe this, and I believe that, so I am faithful. Yes, that's a legitimate sense. But there's faith in the sense of being convicted in your own mind, conscience-wise, about whether or not you can do this or not do this. And there are specific issues that are brought up in that context. Those specific issues that are brought up are about eating of meats and the keeping of days. You might think, well, what's that all about? Well, it was a matter of faith in the sense that some people, assuming that meats that might have been sold in the marketplace may have been offered to pagan idols, and they didn't want to do anything to show any kind of obeisance to pagan idols, said, I can't eat any meat anytime, anywhere, because I don't know whether or not that meat was offered to idols. And so as a matter of conscience, faith in that context, they couldn't do so. And the chapter begins by saying, these people who are, quote-unquote, weak in faith, you might say, oh, 
Well, they're not even really true believers. No, no. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They'd been immersed in the Christ for the mission of their sins. They were living as Christians are supposed to live, but about this particular issue, they were doubtful as to whether or not they could do so. And so in order to live consistently with their conscience, they said, I can't eat that. And the same issue comes up later in the context about the keeping of certain days over others. Now this was such an issue that Paul had to address it not only in Romans chapter 14, but in the first Corinthian letter, he addressed it in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, more so in chapter 8 and chapter 10. Why? Because brethren were making others' consciences the subject of ridicule. You can't do that? What's wrong with you? You spiritual weakling, you. Let me simply say this. It's never right to mock another person's faith, even if that faith is nowhere near what God wants it to be. This is a segue, in part, but it's demanded. Social media has allowed us to act like imbeciles sometimes with reference to how we treat other people who don't think and act and believe the way we do. That's disrespectful of other souls. Other souls don't have to think everything that I think for me to love them. Other souls don't have to say what I say for me to love them. They don't have to do all the things that I think I should do as God dictates to me that I should do. They don't have to do that for me to love them. I have members of my family who are nowhere near what it means to be a New Testament Christian. I still love them. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus loved the people that put him on the cross. He prayed for them in the context of the statements that he made while he was on that cross. He shed his blood for people who didn't care about who he was and what his claims were. Those people who cursed him, those people who killed him. If Jesus did that, then I need to learn to defer to others, even, even if it's not what I wish they were. Romans chapter 14 talks about Christians getting along to the nth degree in which we defer so much to one another that we will love people even if they are not where we are. I've literally seen people teach the gospel to others. I put quotes up there because the way it was approached was very unseemly. In which somebody pretty much said, if you don't believe what I believe, you're damned and going to hell. Well, that may very well be true, but that's not appealing to me from the standpoint of the way the gospel is presented to me, nor is it probably appealing to many other people. So what I want us to understand is this element of conscience goes to the nth degree to talk about the extent to which we are willing to get along to be Christ-like. It's alluded to later in the context of what you see written here. But as you read through those Ten Commandments, there's a sense in which they start with something that's very, very broad, and they end at something that's very narrow. 
I'm the Lord your God. Have no other gods before me. Don't fall down before any images and so forth. All those things focusing on relationship with God, the first of the commandments. And then as you get further into the commandments, it shifts to talk about how you get along with each other. Don't kill anybody. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't do, don't do any of those things. And the very last of them says, don't even think something that you shouldn't think. Well, how's anybody going to know? Well, God will know. And so God is drilling down, so to speak, from the broadest of expectations, love me, respect me, to the narrowest of expectations, that even what you think is going to come into play as to how much I accept you. You might say, well, that's the Old Testament law. It is. But there are principles for that law that come into play as we look at the New Testament. One of the things that Jesus does in the context of the Sermon on the Mount is he teaches about character change first in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes. This is the character that you have to have in order to be my disciple. Lord, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Well, I can tell you what to do and you can do it, and that doesn't mean you've changed your character. All of those things are talking about changing from the inside out, not just going through outward perfunctory changes. That's what the Jews were already used to. They tithed a mint and anise in coming. They prayed in such a way that everybody saw them. They gave in such a way that everybody saw them. They fasted in such a way that everybody saw them. But Jesus said on the inside, they're not where they need to be. And so Jesus very dramatically in the context of preaching the gospel, preaching and teaching and healing, as we see in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, he taught people how to be something that he was like from the inside out. As you get further and further in the context of the Sermon from the Mount, Jesus started talking about things that they used to do that weren't really acceptable. You've heard it said, but I say unto you, multiple times. And one of the things that he says, we've heard it said, don't commit adultery. We got that. That's one of the Ten Commandments, Lord. We know what that says. We haven't committed adultery. And then he does something that might have blown people away when they first heard him say it. Don't even look at another person in such a way. To commit adultery in your heart, don't lust after somebody else. Lord, I can keep myself from doing bad things, but it's really hard to keep myself from thinking bad things. And that's what God's telling them to do. In the context of Romans chapter 4, to me 14, Paul is teaching brothers and sisters in Christ who may have been at odds with each other about these seemingly insignificant details to us today, but matters of great importance. then. Don't disregard a brother. Don't mistreat this brother or sister because they don't think exactly the way you do about these matters of conscience. Because the way you are related to this person and how you deal with these things impacts your relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. Sometimes we think it would be better to be involved in religion to the extent that we could do it long distance. We don't have to be intricately involved. We can uh, punch our cards, so to speak, and I'm being uh, a little sarcastic in this, I grant that. But when God wants us to become his children, 
by obedient, being obedient to his son, he wants us not only to surrender outwardly to what his son has asked us to do, but to change on the inside first that's going to yield those outward acts. We all know that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the summation of the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the opening verses. And we know that Romans chapter 6 in the opening four verses, as well as the closing chapters of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the next to the last chapter in John, talk about what it means to be obedient to the gospel in the context of our faith, repentance, and baptism. But you can teach people that, and they can do that outwardly without having become on the inside what God wants them to be inwardly. And that's why the Gospels don't start with the Great Commission, they end there. If you've understood what it means to be converted from the inside out, then you will be ready to do all of those outward acts because your inside has changed. So much so that you're not only willing to surrender to the Father, Son, and Spirit according to the teachings of Scripture, you're also willing to look at everybody else around you in a different way. That's another soul. Equal in value to my soul. I need to be careful what I say in front of this person. Not because you're afraid to say the truth. Speak the truth. You're supposed to speak the truth in love, as Paul told the Ephesian church. But you don't want to come across in a condescending way. You don't want to do anything in any kind of way that makes it look like that person is less than you in some way. And so Romans chapter 14 starts off by telling people who don't agree with somebody else, a member of the body of Christ, be careful how you treat that person. Well, what if they're wrong? Be careful how you treat that person. What if their matters of conviction are nowhere near what Scripture teaches? Be careful how you treat that person. There's nothing about anything that they do that gives you the right to mistreat another person. Matters of conscience, even if they're not in sync with what God says is true, are matters of conscience that convict people and cause people to live consistently with them. Don't mock that. Be patient. Be kind. And give them a chance to grow. If the roles were reversed, how would you want that person to treat you? If you believe something that was on the house with what everybody else believed. Romans chapter 14 is incredibly painful to read in part because of what it demands of me. Be patient, be kind, be loving, even when you are not in the same place as somebody else. Now that applies to brothers and sisters in Christ in this context. But in other contexts, the same principles apply to everyone, regardless of whether or not they are in or out of the body of Christ. The way people see me act needs to be a measure of Christ acting in me all the time. Not just when we're in the walls of this or any other building associated with the Lord's church. Not just when we're in our homes and we're with family. But every time, all the time, people see us. So let's go into this in a little bit more detail. So if you go a little bit later in the, in the uh, material that's there, 
uh, I want us to focus on some more things that are brought in in Romans 14. So if you drop down to the third page. So notice the way it starts. It starts with concerns concerning faith, especially those who are labeled as weak in faith. I'm going to repeat something that I mentioned before. Weak in faith here does not mean they have doubts about the historicity of the biblical text or the inspiration of the text, or they have doubts about the identity of Jesus or doubts about what it means to be a Christian. That's, that's not the issues here. These are issues that are brought out later in this context when you read in the uh, verses that are listed later about matters of opinion. Don't judge people because their opinion isn't where your opinion is. Make sure you get along to them and make sure you welcome them and not to quarrel over, notice it says, opinions. What color is the church carpet going to be? Who cares? I care and I want it to be this color. It doesn't matter. What about the color of the walls? People get, into, people get into tizzies about all sorts of things that have no consequence. And then they don't care about things that are of great consequence, like the souls of the people in front of them. The chapter starts with an absolutely incredible principle. Treat everybody, regardless of where they are and what they think or believe. If it's different than you, don't mock them. Don't treat them as if they are weaker brethren, as if they are lesser in some way. Don't beat them up because their opinion is not the same as yours about these matters of indifference. And let me simply say, we'll get there later, but these are matters in which God says, I don't care whether or not you eat meat or don't eat meat that's been offered to idols. I don't care about whether or not you take this day and regard it more importantly in the context of your life than some other day. I, I, that, that doesn't matter to me. I haven't ruled on that. Don't you make rules. This is a dramatic issue that's brought out not only in the context of the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. You know what Deuteronomy says, don't add to, don't take away. Don't make laws where God hasn't made laws, and don't remove the laws that God has already made. And some people in the context of these issues were mandating, you've got to do it this way. It's my way or the highway. This is not a matter of redemption. This is not a matter of whether or not you're forgiven by the blood of Jesus. These are insignificant details. But they become very significant because we insist on getting our way. I think my thoughts, I speak my words, I move my body, I'm used to getting my way because it's my body. But there are hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of people that we interact with through life that we have to learn not to live that way, to be more like Jesus. If anybody had a right to mandate it was his way or the highway, it was Jesus. But in the context of reaching out to and teaching people, he wanted to get them to see why he behaved the way he did, not just to force his will upon others. And I have to act the same way. Notice the questions roughly in the middle of the page, on page three. What's the nature of faith in this context? We've already alluded to this. Let's look at it in a little bit more detail. It's not about matters of doctrine. It's not about what you have to do or what you shouldn't do. It's not about specific forms of obedience. It's about matters of personal conviction. And those matters of personal conviction, regardless of whether or not they're right or wrong, have to be considered. 
it determines that person's relationship with himself and how he's going to relate to others and how he relates to God. He may be wrong as wrong could be about his belief system, but you have to defer to him and allow him to express where he is. There are some people who, as a matter of conscience, and they might claim that it's a matter of doctrine, are going to say, I can't do this, or I have to do that. Be patient, be kind, be willing to work with them. Notice the line under that. Faith in the New Testament is noted was a matter in large part that affected one's relationship with deity first, and then with humanity. That's love of God, love of neighbor. But here there's the third element. This person is struggling with where he is and what he thinks and whether or not it's acceptable. And so there's a relationship that this person has that he's struggling with himself. You say you can do that. I can't see that I'm doing that. And so as a matter of conscience, a matter of conviction, I'm not going to do that. And so he's got this interdynamic going on in his own thinking. And, and when he expresses this to you and you're not there, you think, uh, you know, you're weak in the faith, brother. And the text says, accept somebody who's weak in the faith about these matters that are of no ultimate spiritual consequence unless you make them that way. This is not talking about the essentiality of baptism. This is not talking about the uniqueness of our worship on the Lord's Day and what we do in the context of our worship. It's not talking about those things. It's talking about things that are peripheral, that lie outside of that. Other things, definitely, we should make sure that we are going to be uh, concerned about. So let's go a little bit further. Outward acts of faith. Outward acts of faith, so we're about five lines down, prevailed in the general mindset of the Jews over the centuries rather than personal convictions. So they were doing things to do them. Malachi starts by saying, you're offering sacrifices that your masters wouldn't accept. You wouldn't offer this to your employer. You wouldn't offer this to anybody else. And yet, you are passing it off to me, God's saying, which is less than I expected of you. But Lord, we did what you asked us to do. We didn't do it with the fullest of heart. We didn't do it to the extent that we should have, but we did it. Can't you accept that? What's the point? What's the problem? Their hearts weren't there. Their hearts weren't there. What do you want from us, God? Micah asks. Do you want us to, to you know, offer rivers and rivers of, of, of sacrifices? And, and, and no, no, I, I want you, to, I want you to, to love me. I want your heart. I want mercy. I want grace. I want demonstration from the inside first. And so all of these things come into play as we're talking about what it means to get along with each other in Christ. Note it at the top of the fourth page, the second paragraph. They had to choose how they were going to get along with each other. There are some people who seem to live in the objective case in the kickative mood. There's just something about them that it's like they want to be difficult to get along with. Gotta love those people anyway. It looks like they've always got something to say that's not positive, that's negative. They're always incredibly critical. They don't come across as loving and kind and considerate of who you are and what you are and what you need in order to flourish in Christ. You have to love those people anyway. That doesn't mean you can't correct. But in this context, it's not talking about personal maladies, personal deficiencies. It's talking about a matter of conscience in which somebody says, I can't do that. I'm not sure that you're right. I think that I'm right. How are you going to get along with them? 
Notice in this context of the three chapters, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul flat out says, meats offered to idols are nothing. It's okay to eat that. But he acknowledges that not everybody is where he is. On one occasion, in the context of the New Testament, Paul is teaching the gospel to some folks, and they don't respond to it immediately. And he says something that's rather unusual. He says, I hope that you'll continue in the grace of God until we meet again. He didn't say everything you believe is right. He just hoped that he would be able to meet them again. And he ended, rather than condemning them, looking forward to an opportunity to teach them again. He wasn't glossing over their differences. These were matters of doctrinal differences. But he's willing to defer in order to reach people later. Sometimes, some of us, I'm speaking very broadly, not just some of us here, but some of us broadly in the context of New Testament Christianity, wouldn't give in at all for any reason to any person because it means we're giving up something that we would rather have the say over. We want to rule the day. We want to have dominion over somebody else in some way, insignificant though it might be. Paul says you can't do that. You can't do that. In the time that's left, I've selected part of the text at the bottom of page 4 and the beginning of page 5. Look at the text and look at the number of times it focuses on, not just on the doctrinal matter of whether or not you can or cannot do that. God says it's okay either way. But notice the number of times in the text it focuses on how to relate with other people who aren't where you are about matters like this. But in principle, it applies to all matters. Verse 1, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. I can accept you, but I want to argue with you. No, that's not what the verse tells us. Verse 3 and following, let not him who eats, that is, somebody's okay with eating these meats that have been offered to idols, let not him despise one who does not eat. Why would Paul say that? Unless there were some people who were despising others because they weren't where everybody else were, or it was, or where they were. It bothers me that he doesn't see things the way I do, Okay. That's not a reason to mistreat this person. You want to influence people for good, be patient like Jesus was. For the three to three and a half years of his ministry, he constantly bumped up against, and they bumped up against him, people who didn't agree with him. He continued to teach. He continued to love. Yes, he did on occasion say some harsh words to straighten them out, but that's not where he started. Let not him who eats despise him. Why are you saying that? Because somebody somewhere is doing that. And let not him who, eat, who does not eat judge him who eats. So one person's despising him because he can't. One's judging him uh, who says you can't. What's the point? They're both at odds with each other. Who are you to judge another servant? He's a servant of God. You're a servant of God. You're both servants of God. From that perspective, you're equal. Be careful about judging each other in this sense, to his own master, that's the Lord in each case, he stands or falls. Indeed, he was made to stand for God is able to make him stand. Notice, on either side of this particular problem, which were inconsequential from God's perspective, God says, through Paul, each of you about these matters stand as okay in my sight. 
Verse 5 and following, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. There's the sense of conscience, not just what they think, but what they are emotionally and conscientiously convicted of. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. Who said that? Paul said that. How did he say that? By means of the inspiration of God. By means of the Spirit of God. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. What's the point? You're both right about these matters. That does not apply to everything. But even in matters of opinion, make sure you treat each other with respect. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself. This is critical. I don't live in a world where I am isolated from everybody else. I'm not a hermit. I don't live in a cave. I don't live in the top of a tree. I don't have, you know, it's not like I'm shutting off communication from everybody. In the context of dealing with people day in and day out, you need to realize what you do and the way you act, your attitude, what you think, say, and do, it impacts others. Nothing you do is going to be so totally unnoticed by the rest of the world that it impacts no one. No, it impacts people on a regular basis. None of us lives to himself. No one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, we live, or whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. The point is, don't make these matters more than they need to be. For to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again. What? That he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. So why are you judging one another? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If somebody's living in a way that they're not heading the way God wants them to go from the standpoint of being righteous and godly and ethical and teaching all the things that God wants, that's an issue. But this is not the issue here. It's not a moral problem that he's addressing. It's not a doctrinal problem he's addressing. It's a matter of conviction about matters that God says makes no difference which way you choose. It's okay. Verse 12, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Notice, each of us give account to God. We need to be careful about demanding that others give account to us. You're not going to stand before me in the judgment scene. I'm not going to stand before you in the judgment scene. We're all going to stand before God. And it's about these particular matters. Be careful how you treat each other. Therefore, let us not. So notice, you're going to stand before God. Verse 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Why is he saying that? Because that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. But resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Don't live and act in such a way that you taunt somebody and say, I'm doing what you think I can't do. I'm doing what you can't do, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's not very helpful. And evidently, that's the sort of thing that was going on in the body of Christ in the church at Rome. 14 and following. I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus, look, he's very, very direct here, that there's nothing unclean of itself. That animal's not unclean because you think it's unclean. That act is not unclean just because you think it is or it isn't. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, with reference to the meats of the days, to him it is. If you think it is, that's the way you're going to act. That's the way you're going to treat it. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. The point is you are using that to taunt somebody 
who's not as strong in faith as you are. And that's the way the chapter begins in verse 1. Don't destroy others, is intended here, with your food, the one for whom Christ died. Don't live in such a way that anything that you do before another brother is going to cause them to lose faith. They may not see things the way you do about these matters of opinion. Don't use that matter of opinion to cause them to move away. Don't destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died, which is the brother that you disagree with. Don't let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, it's more important than that, but righteousness and peace and joy in the spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. And in this context, serving Christ means don't make an issue of those things that aren't an issue with God. As the chapter closes, therefore, we've dealt with all these things. Let's pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify another, build each other up. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Don't destroy the work of God for anything that's a matter of opinion. All things indeed are pure, but it's evil for the man who eats with offense. So if he's got a conscience issue, remember who he is. It's good neither to eat meat nor drink wine, nor to do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Why is he saying these things? Because evidently others were using the strength of their faith to mock those who weren't where they were about a matter that wasn't as consequential as they thought it was. Do you have faith, conscience in this context? Have it yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith. You have to live consistent with your own conscience. For whatever is not from faith, and that's conscience here, is sin. There's much more that could be said about the whole notion of what it means to get along with brothers and sisters in Christ than what we see here. The entire New Testament is about it. Every time we get together with brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to be mindful of who they are and whose they are and the value of their souls as being equal to yours. You need to treat me like you care because you do care. I need to treat you like I care because I do care. Not just outwardly, not just putting on a show, but living that way day in and day out. It may cost you something in time and effort. It may cost you in that you're going to do something that you'd rather not do or not get to do something that you'd rather do. But the value of a soul, any soul, is so important that you'd be willing to put aside these matters of opinion for the benefit of a beloved brother or sister in Christ. If you're not a Christian, there's a sense in which these principles come into play and what it means to become a Christian. The whole notion of what it means to become Christ is to have the mind that Christ had. Even though he was a king, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's incredible. Involved in the creation of everything that exists physically. Genesis 1, Hebrews chapter 1. And yet he came in the form of a servant. He came as if he were guilty in the eyes of some people. 
went to the cross, deferring, 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 deferring for the greater good of all humanity. And those of us who are already Christians balk sometimes at deferring to a single individual in a single instance because we want to have our way. The whole, whole message of what it means to be Christ in becoming a Christian is to learn to think like him and act like him. You are giving up something that you want that may have been important to you for a greater good, for the salvation of your soul, for the honor and glory of God, and for the impact that you can have on other souls, prompting them to live in such a way that they will surrender just like you surrendered. What if every brother and sister in Christ treated every other brother and sister in Christ the way they saw you treat every brother and sister in Christ? But if they saw you being mean and nasty and rude and dismissive rather than deferential. I'm supposed to live in such a way that you see something in me that's reflective of Christ. But that's not just your expectations of me. That's all of our expectations of each other. And it starts in the context of what it means to become Christ when you die to self and you die to sin, expressing your faith in Christ committing to change your life in repentance and being born again of water and the Spirit when you're baptized into Christ. Let's sing the song of invitation. If anybody needs the prayers of the congregation or in any way is ready to obey the gospel, we encourage you to do so now while we stand and while we sing.